You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. kids, I have a quiz for you. How many days until Christmas? Does anybody know? Do you know? How many days until Christmas? Somebody added up. It's 41. I've been counting. It's 41 days. Anybody anticipating Christmas? Do you, do you remember that when you were a kid? 
and you were anticipating the days of Christmas, it was sort of this promise that was hanging out there, right? And you would all of a sudden see these gifts start to appear under the tree, and you're wondering what they are. You shake them. Any of you guys shake them? Do you not do that today? You just wait. There's no presents in there. Okay. And then maybe, you know, you try to kind of like look through some of the flaps and try to see what's in the package, right? And then you can't sleep Christmas Eve. You can't wait to get up and open the presents. And so um, what we have is we have here, we have in a sense sort of the opening of the present. We've been walking through this life of Abraham, and it has been taking forever, more than 41 days, 25 years for God to bring about this promise that he gave way back in chapter 12, where he said to Abraham that he would give him land and offspring and, and, uh, and blessing. And so now we've been waiting, we've been waiting, we've been waiting for this promise to come. And now we finally get to the promise. God finally keeps his promise in chapter 21. Um, and what I want to do for us, with us today is look at four scenes. So I'm, we're going to walk through four scenes in this chapter. And it's almost going to be like four little mini sermons with the second one being the longest. So don't freak out if I'm spending a little more time on the second. And now you're like, oh, my, I'm going to be late for lunch. Don't worry about that. Um, we'll spend a little bit more time on the second one because the New Testament picks up on that narrative that, uh, that Leah read. And we'll unpack that a little bit a little bit later. So four scenes in this chapter. One, a son is given, finally, in verses 1 through 8. Scene number two, there's a cutting off of Ishmael, uh, verses 9 through 14. We see another promise, a lesser promise that's kept to Ishmael in verses 15 through 21. And then we have a place secured. We have a place secured for Abraham in verses 22 through 34. So let's jump into scene number one. A son is given. It says here that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his own age. And at the time which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was, on, was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when he, his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Okay, So that's scene number one, is that a boy is given, a son is given. And uh, this, this was part of the promise to begin with. They have been waiting. Uh, Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90. And they have been waiting for this for a long time. They've tried every other scheme to try to bring about God's promise, and now it's finally come. And I want you to notice just a few things. One, notice that really there's not a lot about Isaac. Um, I, I don't know, for those that, uh, do you remember, parents, those of you that have multiple kids, you have got hours and hours and hours of video of your first child. And then you get to like the third or the fourth, and there's just no record that they exist, right? So this is this first child by Abraham and Sarah, and there's really not a lot about it. Like all of this anticipation of the promise coming through this one, and really the center of the story is God, and what God has done, and what God has brought about. And so even as Isaac is born and you're taking pictures, there's no birth story here. There's no, and Isaac's here and God did it. So even here we see that as the, the driving narrative of the story is that while Isaac is the promised one who's coming miraculously, this is about God's work. God did the work. God has brought about the promise. Isaac is the instrument, but it's really God that, and his promise that makes this special. God is the center. Isaac is not. And so God is the one in all the pictures, right? Not Isaac. God did the work. The Lord visited. The Lord did as he had spoken to them. 
God did the work and God kept his word. You have over and over as he said. And then notice also Abraham's obedience. God, Abraham is now starting to turn a corner to where he is responding rightly to God. He circumcises him on the eighth day according to God's command. Abraham sees the promise and is, is in, he's starting to respond more faithfully to God. Uh, so we see Abraham's obedience to the spoken and command of God. And so this is a sweet chapter. After all of this tension and all the icky that we have gone through in the last couple of chapters, this is a sweet reprieve where the, the promise has come. And Abraham is responding rightly and giving God praise. There's this theme of laughter. The Hebrew word zak, word zak, or Isaac is itzak, meaning laughter. This theme of laughter is again and again in this text. We're going to see that, that there is these, uh, Moses is doing this narrative thing that his original readers in Hebrew would have picked up on. And here is you have this theme of laughter. This is an absurd, joyful thing, that this woman, 90 years old, would be having a baby and would be having to care for a baby. This was something that was promised back in, Je- back in Genesis 17, 17, when God says to Abraham, no, you're going to have a wife, or you're going to have a son by Sarah. And he's like, he laughs. He falls down on his face and he laughs. Abraham laughs and says, no, nah, just go with Ishmael. I'm not sure that I can uh, raise another boy. I'm not sure that this old man and this old woman can have this. And so this idea of this is absurd, God. This is, this is, this is laughable. And, uh, but God assures him that it's going to come through Sarah. And then in Genesis 18, the same thing happens. Sarah overhears from the messengers that she's going to have a baby, and behind the tent, she laughs. And the angels kind of call her out on it, going, why'd you laugh? Because it's silly. It's crazy that these two old people would have a child. But God is doing this in such a way that he will get the credit. He is going to pick the most absurd, like, you're so unable to do this in and of yourself that I'm going to get the glory. It's going to be sure that I'm the one that has done this. And then he weans him. So by the end of verse eight, we get to Isaac being maybe three to five years old, three to five years old. That's typically sort of the weaning range of of kids at this time. So you've got this little toddler, this little preschooler running around, and there's this great celebration, this great feast. And his name is actually laughter because God has done an absurd thing, but a joyful thing. Which, if you were to just take away from these first eight verses, it would be this. God always arranges things so that he does the work and therefore gets all the glory. That's really at the heart of this is that, yes, God has brought forth Isaac by the natural means of Abraham and Sarah. And yet it's been a supernatural thing. God is doing things always so that he gets, he does the work and he gets the glory. Our job is to trust his promises, obey his word, and laugh when it pays off. This long, slow journey with God is paying off here in chapter 21. So scene number two. So just remember that. God always does things so that he's doing the work, he's getting the credit, and we get the joy. We get to laugh at it in joy. Scene number two, there's a cutting off. So with this coming of Isaac, now we've got some tension building. We've got a problem. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So the son is laughing at her son. Now, this is the same word, zak, that's used earlier to speak of laughing and used of, of Isaac's name. But it's in a different form in Hebrew, which means that we're talking about a different thing. It's still a play on the same word of laughing. But 
This word in this form is used throughout the Bible in a variety of ways. It could mean playing, could mean entertaining, it could mean sexual mistreatment. Well, that it changes the game a little bit. And mocking. And mocking. So Ishmael, he's 14 years older than Isaac. So we're talking a, what, 16 to 19 year old is Isaac. You know, there's no teenage years, so to speak, at this time. You're either a child or a man. So Ishmael is kind of in the man category here, the early man category here. And he's got his little kid brother who's been the one that everybody's been hoping for. And he's laughing at him. And Sarah picks this up term laughing there is probably more the idea of mocking. In fact, Galatians 4.29 says, this is Paul's interpretation of this, but just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the one who was born according to the spirit. So this means that whatever's going on between Isaac and Ishmael is, uh, is, is weird. It's not good. This is, this is dangerous. This feels a little bit, and Sarah's picking up on it, this might be kind of a Cain and Abel story again, right? Where there's this rivalry over the descendancy of the promise from Abraham. And Isaac is mistreating little Isaac. Did I get that right? Ishmael is mistreating little Isaac, yes. Laughing at him, sort of a play on words, mocking him, maybe, I don't know, abusing him. We're not sure, but there's that possibility within this range of words. So we've got something bad going on here. Ishmael... If, well, if you remember, Ishmael's mom, Hagar, was laughing at Sarah back in chapter, what was that, chapter 14? And so we have this old rivalry kind of coming up. Who is the descendant? Who's the keeper of the promise? And Ishmael is doing something that should not be done to little Isaac. And Sarah picks up on it. It's always the moms, right? Mama Bear goes, nope, you're not doing that to my kid, right? And so she goes to Abraham. In fact, we can just read it here. And it says, So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Uh, you could read this in such a way that this is just an old beef, right? Like, you know, there has been some tension between her and Hagar. Um, but it seems like, by God's own response, that Sarah's onto something. There is a real danger and threat to Isaac here. Verse 11, When these things... And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. So here God's giving a confirmation that, yeah, listen to your wife this time. <laughs> you listened to her one other time. That was bad. You should have checked in on me with me on that one. Here I'm checking in with you saying, no, she's on to something. She sees something you don't see. And yes, we need, you, we need to cut off this part. We need to remove this, um, remove this threat, remove this rival to the child of promise. Uh, and verse 13, but God follows it up with a promise. He says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring, which is a promise that he made back in 14 to Hagar and Ishmael, that he would make many descendants of him. He wouldn't have the supernatural blessing of God in the way that Isaac will, but he is going to be, because of his tie to Abraham, will be blessed in a more physical way. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Again, we're starting to get Abraham to where he is, he is now starting to re respond quickly to the word of God. He is now getting to where he's willing to do the hard thing. Um, and so we're seeing this growth in Abraham. 
in that he's going to obey God, even though he has some trepidation about it. He's got a clear word from God. He's going to obey. So he gets up early and he packs them some sandwiches and some water and uh, sends them on their way. And uh, they go off into the desert and it gets a little rough. But before we get to that scene number three, the New Testament picks up on this in Galatians chapter four. And, uh, and Paul takes this as an analogy. He, he takes this as a, an allegory about how salvation works, how our relationship with God works. Um, God reaffirms his promise to Ishmael. That's going to take place. Uh, God's preservation of him is going to come in the next section. But Galatians 4, 21 through 31, this is really interesting. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen? Uh, do you not listen to the law? And what's happening in the book of Galatians is that the gospel has come to this people and these Gentiles and these Gentiles who have no history with the Jewish religion, no history with the Jewish customs, no claim to the promise of Abraham at all, have the gospel proclaimed to them. And they believe, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now get to claim all of the promises of Abraham, uh, all the promises of David, all the promises of the Old Testament, they now have a claim to them through their faith in Jesus Christ. They have forgiveness of sins, and they are now grafted into the people of God. Well, what happens is that shortly after that, the Judaizers come. And what the Judaizers do is they're like, yeah, we have respect for Jesus as the Messiah, but you can't say that you are part of the people of God unless you follow the Jewish law, particularly circumcision. So what Jesus is not enough to get you into the promise and people of God. He's great. This is good. We're not trying to talk you out of Jesus. We just want you to add a little bit of religion in, a little bit of law keeping in, because just trusting in Jesus is not quite enough to bring you into the people of God. So you keep these rituals, these Jewish rituals, you'll be grafted in, and along with your belief in Jesus, you will be part of the claim. You will have claim to the promises of Abraham. So then Paul writes them a letter and just goes, I can't believe you're abandoning the gospel. I cannot believe how, you're at, how you are embracing this teaching that Jesus is insufficient, that trusting in him is not enough. Do not let them lie to you and add law-keeping, Jewish law-keeping, to your salvation. And so he writes this blistering letter of Galatians. And then he goes, let me go ahead and give you an analogy. We have this, uh, we have this same thing with the Abraham and Isaac uh, situation. So he says this, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, naturally, was something people can do. That's what happened. Ishmael was born according to the plan and purposes and scheming and works of people, not while the son of the free woman was born through promise. It was something supernatural that only God could give. So you have these two options. Are you going to be in the people of God by your own works and rituals or by the supernatural work of God? You have to pick. You can't mix them. And so he goes on to say, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery, which is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above, 
the Jerusalem of promise, she is our mother. You weren't born physically by law-keeping. You were born spiritually by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're part of something bigger and better and not something that you can take any credit for or contribute to. He says, For as it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You are not in labor. Sorry, didn't read that very cleanly. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Clearly the work of God. It is amazing that you get to be in the kingdom. It's laughable, right? That God would receive you by grace through faith, considering all the things that you've done and thought. God knows all of that and brought you in. And you don't, nothing you do adds or takes away from that at all. And if you, in your mind and heart, start adding or taking away from the work of Christ by your own fleshly, whether it be sin or whether it be your own works righteousness, doesn't matter. Any contribution to Christ is like the slave woman. Just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted the one according to the spirit. So it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So God is using Abraham as a, as a picture, a picture of what salvation is like. You cannot mix works and religion and the works of the flesh with the promise of God. There has to be, there's a circumcision, so to speak, in this family. There's a removing of the flesh. The removing of Isaac from the family, from the descendancy. This is, God is making a picture of this. It might sound harsh, but Abraham is meant to be a picture of what's going to eventually be true about the gospel. That it is Christ alone, apart from any works at all. Works of the flesh, whether they be sin, whether they be works of righteousness, they must all be renounced in favor of grasping Christ. So the bottom line then is that the spirit and the flesh are incompatible. Something has to go. You're trusting in one of those two things. You're either trusting in your own good works and religion or you're trusting in Christ. There's no mixing the two. You can't do it. You have to put your whole trust and confidence in one or the other. I think Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter three. So if, you'll, um, if you can turn there in your Bible or you can just listen, Philippians chapter three this same issue is hitting, Paul is warning them in the, in the, in the Philippian church, um, where he's like, beware of the mutilation, is what he says. Beware of the dogs. Beware of those that want to come in and add to the gospel works of the law. Beware. Because they're trying to get, to transfer your confidence in Christ to confidence in yourself. And there's something in our hearts that really wants to take at least 1% credit I'm just 1% better than those other people. I just want to add a little bit so that I get a little bit of the glory. And God's like, I will have none of that. It will be Christ and Christ alone, or it will be nothing. So here's what he says in Philippians 3, verse 3. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, require circumcision as a gateway into the promises of God, as if Christ is insufficient. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Isaac is banished, right? He is out of our lives. We put no confidence in our works. It is gone. 
And he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul is kind of saying, if anyone could kind of count on Isaac, right? If anyone could count on, on getting favor with God through religious observance, he's like, I could do it. Paul's like, I am, I am probably the most qualified person that you could find. Here's what he says. Though I have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, let's see, we're on the sixth thing now, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, if, if anyone could earn God's favor, if anyone, was qualified or had a chance. I had every advantage. I came from a godly home. My parents got me circumcised on the right day. I've got the right ethnicity. I've got the right upbringing. I had all the grades. I checked all the boxes. And then he says all of that, all of that fleshly accomplishment, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's, that's a cutting off of Ishmael, is what he's saying. My flesh, my thinking that I can get God's promises by my efforts has to be cut off. Has to, a circumcision of the heart, as the New Testament talks about it. A cutting off of the flesh. And then he talks about what he puts confidence in, in Philippians 3. He says, For uh, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, the one born of promise. We're going to celebrate that here at Christmas, right? Is that Isaac is not the only uh, miraculously born son. He's a foreshadowing of the ultimate God-man who is born miraculously of a woman who comes and, and, and through his death and resurrection and our faith in that, we're born supernaturally again. And so he says, the worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things that's been cut off. Ishmael, which was all the hope of Abraham, right? cut off so also my works have been cut off I count it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may be attained to the resurrection of the dead so Paul is saying that there is a picture being painted God is making Abraham do weird things, say weird things. We're going to see another weird thing in the next chapter. God is doing a special thing to help us have the categories in our mind of what's going to happen in the gospel when Christ comes. So we're not, <laughs> so parents, don't banish your younger son this afternoon as much as you might want to, or your older son, I guess it would be, it would be older one, right? Don't do that. There's a picture being painted here that God is doing something special through Abraham. I think that Jesus picks up the same thing in his conversation with the rich young ruler. Where he says, if you will be perfect, you must keep the whole law. And he comes up and he goes, I've done it. Check. Checked all the boxes. He says, go sell all you have. Get rid of all of that. All your possessions, all your credibility, and you come follow me. And he's unwilling to do it, at least at the moment there. It's that same idea. Is that works of the flesh don't transfer whether they be sin or whether they be righteousness and law-keeping. It must be purely on the promise of God. And so that's how the New Testament picks up this story 
and why this whole thing is playing out. The spirit and the flesh are incompatible. Something has to go. Something has to go. And that's true in your own heart, is what Paul is saying. Something has to go. There has to be a circumcising of your confidence in yourself, a sending out, a casting off of all my sin, all my self-righteousness, and clinging only to the promised one, to the one who is promised, the miraculous one, Jesus Christ. All right, let's go to scene number three. That was the longest one. You made it through, and most of you are awake, which is great. Scene number three, another promise kept. So Abraham follows through, and Hagar is in the desert again. Goes tough for Hagar. Verse 15, when the water of the skin was gone, so we're in trouble here, in the tra- traveling through the Sinai Desert is not pleasant. Um, the original readers would know that as Moses is writing this to them. She put the child under one of the bushes. And we're talking a, what, 15, what, 16 to 19 year old. So this is not, she's sort of helping him. I'm not sure how much she's carrying him. But anyway, she puts him under one of the bushes. She thinks he's going to die. He's on the verge of death. She went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look upon the death of the child. I can't watch him die. I can't do it. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. It doesn't say that she cried out to God. She just is weeping. Um, Verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy, which is interesting. Here's the voice of the boy. And the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. That tells you a lot about God right there, right? It was, God wanted him to send off Ishmael, but God doesn't hate Ishmael in that sense, right? He still has a promise he's going to keep to him. God made a promise he's going to keep, and he sees. He sees even in this desert, the boy in the bush. Verse 18, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. So we still have this sweet grace to Hagar and to the boy. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and the Lord and she went and filled the skin with water and God gave the boy a drink. So I don't know how this worked but somehow God opened her eyes to be able to see what either was there before or wasn't there before I don't know but the provision that they need is provided by God because he sees and hears and opens her eyes. And she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin of water and gave it to the boy to drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So again, Hagar's back in the desert. Son is dying. She's crying. The son apparently is crying out, maybe to God. I don't know. It doesn't say but God hears the voice, and we have this play on words of Shema, the, the Hebrew word for hear. So that's so we've had this, this Hebrew word for laughing earlier in the chapter. Now we have this Hebrew play on words of Shema. God hears, and God opens the eyes. Remember when Hagar was in the desert back in chapter 14, she called God the one who sees me. And here we have the God who hears as well and opens her eyes. The God who sees opens her eyes that she might see and hears. So we have this idea of seeing the Shema again and again. God hears. Um, Ishmael's name means God sees. Ishmael. It's God hears. He's like, I hear, I hear the hearing one, right? I hear, so laugh at the laughing one, right? Isaac, laugh, laughter about the laughing one. 
and I am hearing the one who, the hearing one. Um, I hear you, Hagar, is what God's saying. I hear you, Ishmael. You rejoiced and learned and named me because I see you, and now I'm able to make you see. Ishmael prospers, marries, he's doing well, according to the lesser promise of God. He's not the promised one, but because he is a son of Abraham, God does bless him. And he's going to play an interesting part later on in Genesis chapter 37. You know in Lord of the Rings, where Frodo is asking Gandalf why Gollum wasn't killed earlier? It was because of pity, right? Which just says there's something a little bit different in the heart of a hobbit. (laughs) Everyone else, Gollum was willing to kill to get the ring. But there's something a little bit different about these hobbits. They just have a little more virtue. There's a little bit more honor in them. And, but Frodo is wrestling with why is this Gollum still alive? And Gandalf talks about pity and all this stuff. And there may still be a part to play for Gollum, right? And you find out that in, in some ways, in this weird sort of backwards way, Gollum helps save the whole story, right? Not to ruin it for you, but read the books, watch the movies, whatever, all right? Similarly, Ishmael is going to play a part because when you get to Genesis chapter 37, they have Joseph is in a pit and his brothers are about to kill him. And at just that moment, guess who comes by? The Ishmaelites, the descendants of Ishmael, who offer money for Joseph. Joseph is then going to go down into Egypt through a wild set of circumstances, become king, and save his family from famine. So God is playing a massive game of 4D chess here, right? He's got a plan for Ishmael. Ishmael in some way is going to save the plan of God by means of Genesis chapter 37. So God even has a plan for the one that has been rejected. He still has a plan and grace and a purpose even for Ishmael. While he will be a rival and there will be a lot of heartache and trials between Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael is going to unwittingly, his descendants are going to save the promise of God later in chapter 37. So we learn from this scene right here that God gives grace even to the outsider. There's a common grace given even to the one who has been cut off. There's a grace, a common grace given to him. He keeps his promises even to those outside his people. God is gracious and kind um, to all people. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. And so we learn that about God, that he even keeps his promises to Ishmael. Last scene, scene number four. At that time, Abimelech, so we have a place secured. Here we go. Abimelech, you remember Abimelech? Abimelech was the one who took Sarah back in chapter, what is that? Chapter 20, just a chapter earlier. Takes her, which is amazing (laughs) for a couple of reasons. Uh, She's 90 and she still is just like, everybody wants her to be in their harem. Like this is she, she is just stunningly beautiful. <laughs> Some have said that maybe that's because she didn't have kids, right? <laughs> the kids just age you a little bit, right? She just didn't have to raise teenagers yet. She'll get there. Uh, teen, yeah, anyway. So I don't know if that's true. I don't mean any offense to anyone. That was just a kind of a joke, I guess. All right, so back in chapter 20, he takes her, and then God essentially threatens him. Says Abimelech in a dream, give her back now. That man is blessed by me. And uh, I'm going to destroy you if you don't give her back. And it jars him. Like it just, Abimelech is jarred. And so he gives her back like, hey, take all of my stuff. Just take everything. Like, I don't care. Get out of here. Don't lie to me again, please. And pray for me. And Abraham does. And so Abimelech uh, is a title. 
it's still the same Abimelech from chapter 20, but you're going to see the word Abimelech happen several times. It means king. It means my father is king. So it's a title, not particularly just a name. So don't be thrown by that when you see Abimelech pop out throughout the Bible. It's not talking about a guy that lived 500 years. It's talking about a title. This is king of the Philistine areas. And Phicol. So there's now this conflict over water rights between Abraham's people and Abimelech. And he's got his general with him. So this is, a, this is a serious conflict between these two. Abraham's people have dug a well, and Abimelech has taken that something belongs to Abraham again. He took his wife before. Now Abraham lied about it. So now this Abimelech has taken a well. His people have taken the well, and Abraham is going to have this conflict with him. And it looks intense because they've got a commander of the army there. So it says here, verse 23, Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, <laughs> or with my descendants or my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land that you have sojourned. Um, And Abraham said, I swear, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. So he claims ignorance again, just like he did in chapter 20. I didn't know. I didn't take it. Um, I'm, I'm innocent here. I've not heard of it until today. Verse 27, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Um, Abraham sent seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there they swore, they both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. All right, so dispute over water rights. There's tents. It looks like this could really blow up. This seems like a repeat of chapter 20 in some ways. Um, And notice that uh, here's what Abimelech knows of Abraham. One, God is with you. Two, I can't trust you. That's the reputation of the man of God at this point, right? God clearly blesses you, so I don't want to cross you, but I am not sure what to believe from you which is sort of interesting that that's sort of the reputation that Abraham has now. God's clearly blessing him, and you're a bit of a shyster. I'm not sure what to take, um, what to believe about you. So anyway, they go through this whole ceremony, and they make a covenant with each other. I'll get the well, you'll leave me alone, and everything will be good. And he offers these seven ewe lambs. And here we have the play on the word Sheba, or Shiva, which means seven. It can also mean oath. It's the same word seven or oath. And so in this text, the word, the Abraham is mentioned seven times. Abimelech is mentioned seven times. And there's these seven lambs and they make an oath that becomes this significant place. Beersheba becomes a significant place in Israel's history. And it becomes a marker. You hear from Dan to Beersheba throughout the Bible, that Beersheba is sort of like the entrance point into the kingdom. This is like the first fruits of the promise. And so you have this securing of a place. You have the securing of a place for Abraham by means of a covenant. And here's how Abraham closes out. Hang with me. Verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He gives God a name, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So this use of the word seven and oath Means this is a place of covenant. This is a place of security. This is a place where things have worked out in Abraham's favor. And he plants this slow-growing tamarisk tree. Tamarisk trees are really good in dry areas. They provide a lot of shade. 
and they're just very resilient. They grow very slowly. And I think what's happening with Abraham is he now has a place. Do you remember the blessing in Genesis chapter 12? There was a threefold blessing. One, of an offspring. Two, of land. Three, of blessing. And now, 25 years later, guess what he's seeing in sort of mustard seed form? He's got a five-year-old boy. He's got a well. He's got a tree. And he's making it his home. He's making it his home as a place of worship. So what has taken 25 years to happen is now beginning to take root. He's now seeing the little shoot come out of the ground. All of this walking with God is starting to pay off, and it's so small. You think of the cosmic realities. You see these big, scary kingdoms. And what is happening is that God is now, he's seeing just the little tiny shoot of God's promise now coming true. Blessing, a son, and a well. And he plants a tree. He plants a tree because he plans to come back here. He plans for this to be a place where his legacy is established. This is a place of promise. And I love the name that he gives to God. He gives to God here. He worships him. And this is like, I think this is a contented moment in the heart of Abraham. Finally, I'm seeing the promises come to fruition. Of all the turmoil, the ups and downs that we have, and we've got one more chapter of it, of turmoil. But here we have this sweet landing place in Genesis chapter 21 where he just gets to enjoy the fact that God is keeping his promise. It has been slow. And the name that he gives God here is Yahweh El Olam, the God, the everlasting God, which I think is sort of a humorous way of God. You take forever. God, you just play such a long game. This takes forever. Like this sermon, this just takes forever, God. The everlasting God. He's sitting there, and I think it's just this moment of contentment. He doesn't have this big army or this big nation. He's not yet a blessing to all nations, and yet here it is. His faith has not been in vain. He's got the laughter boy, right? He's got peace in his home. He's got a, he doesn't quite have the whole promised land, but he's got a well, and he's got a tree. And he's contented in these little graces that God has given him, that he's going to keep his promise. Zak, Shema, Shiva, oath. Laugh, hear, and don't forget the oath, the place, the well of the oath. This is not like the sign that you see, live, laugh, love. No, this is laugh, hear, and remember the oath, which tells you so much about what his relationship with God has been like. This has been absurd, his walk with God. And yet he has heard the voice of the Lord and he has responded with faith, not perfectly. And God has made an oath to him that he is keeping. And right now it looks like a little boy, an insignificant well, and a little tree. And he worships the Lord with the little graces that God has given him that are going to become big things later. So the bottom line here is that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Remember Jesus says this? God loves doing the small little thing over a long period of time. We like big, fast, famous. And God loves slow, unseeable, patient, long-term. He says in Matthew 13, 31 through 33, Jesus says this. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like the grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. And when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree 
maybe a tamarisk tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it has all leavened. This boy, this well, this tree is going to impact the nations. And I think for just a moment, Abraham gets it. He understands it. God has kept his promises and he sees God as the everlasting God. So if I could leave you with one thing from this chapter, it would be this. Find your confidence and your contentment in the slow, small ways that the everlasting God is keeping his promises to you. His promises are sure, but they're slow and they look small. But I think the Christian life is built on all these little graces accumulated over time. God gives you enough grace to get you to the next day where he'll have more grace there for you. And that has been Abraham's whole life. And now he's beginning to see the pieces of the puzzle come together in a very small way. It's a boy, it's a well, it's a tree. And he is contented in the God that takes forever, but he does come through. So take heart in your own life, friends. Give a lot of grace to other people because God's doing a slow work in them too. So before you are quick to write people off, just know that God may be doing a slow work there that requires some patience and celebrate the little graces you see in each other. Parents, do that with your kids. Oh, it takes forever (laughs) to get this through. Celebrate the little graces the Lord is with you. Remember that it's the everlasting God. The life of true faith is built on these little graces, so plant your tree of hope. Worship the God who grows little things over a long period of time into the everlasting, indestructible plans of eternity. That's what he's going to do with this church. That's what he's going to do with you. That's what he's going to do with your kids. The slow, steady kingdom is like a mustard seed. Let's put our confidence in all of the little ways that he's doing, and let's not miss out on the enjoyment of them. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this chapter who's, that's got a lot of twists and turns and hard to figure out what all is going on in it. But I think at the bottom line, God, we're supposed to see you and we're supposed to learn from Abraham to walk with you through the ups and downs, to play the long game and to really enjoy all the little graces. So Lord, I pray that that would be true, that as we sing and as we walk out of here, we fellowship together and then we walk out of here that we would just notice all of the little ways you're keeping your promises to us And we would acknowledge them. We would give you worship for them. God, help us to see all the little graces that you've given to our kids and our families, all the graces that you've blessed this church with, God. And I pray that we would give you glory for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.